you. Are there any vaginas in the house? Any eco-vagina-friendly men in the house? That's the loudest I've ever heard that. I want to thank Nina for that humbling introduction. Um, it, it, I feel like kind of hiding somewhere. Um, but I also just want to thank Nina and Kenny for inviting me to this extraordinary place where it's clear that the culture is changing in here now and the impact is, I, I'm just kind of overwhelmed being here and this morning, just the extraordinary voices and truth tellers on the stage, I feel flattered and privileged to come behind them. Um, it's hard to believe that almost 15 years ago, I said the word vagina on a small stage in a little theater called here in New York City. When I first read those monologues, my most pressing concern was being able to get the words out of my terrified mouth. I certainly could not have conceived then what would follow, both in terms of this incredible movement and violence against women and the life of the vagina monologues itself. I had no intention, to be honest, of even writing a play. I was already a way, 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 way downtown playwright. I assumed a play about vaginas would permanently secure that status. <laughs> if I have learned anything in these past 15 years, it is how to hold two opposite thoughts at the same time. The most radical play I'd ever written turned out to be the play that was accepted and invited into the mainstream. Saying the word I was not supposed to say is the thing that gave me a voice in the world. Revealing the very personal stories of women and their private parts gave birth to a public global movement to end violence against women and girls. In terms of existing in the world of opposites, I see now that living between the play, the vagina monologues, and the V-Day movement between the ambiguous energy of theater and the less nuanced world of activism has both stretched and inspired me. The art has made the activism more creative and bold. The activism has made the art more sharply focused, more grounded, more dangerous. The trick in both has been to avoid ideology and fundamentalism in one direction, fragmentation and irresponsibility in the other. The trick has been to create certain universal givens, i.e. the play, the intention of the movement, and then to trust individuals and groups to bring their own vision, culture, creativity to the experience. The trick has been to create something that is both concrete and fluid, something that can spread quickly and yet has integrity, something that is owned and changed by many, but has certain ingredients and laws that allow this adaptability. The trick has been to live in the contradictions while maintaining principles, beliefs, and purpose. I believe this friction has been at the core what has energized and spread V-Day throughout the world so quickly. The excitement and danger of just saying the word, um, performing the play in tiny villages, conservative cities with unlikely performers, ministers, doctors, telephone workers, members of parliament, in unusual venues, churches, synagogues, women's living rooms, stadiums, and factories, has propelled the play to be performed in 45 languages, 119 countries, raising nearly $50 million for women and girls. There are so many victories. Women speaking the word where it was never uttered, 
women standing up against local and national governments, religious forces, parents, husbands, friends, university administrators, college presidents, the voice inside them that judges and censors, college students across the world making V-Day a radical annual event. Recently, someone who toured colleges told me there are only two things on every college campus, a Starbucks and a V-Day. <laughs> women reclaiming their bodies, telling the stories of their own violations, desires, victories, shame, adventures, women finding their power, their voice, their leadership abilities by becoming accidental activists, women finding each other, women standing up for women in other parts of the world, women releasing memories that have numbed their bodies and depleted their energy, women standing on the stage, on edge, in reds and pinks with New York accents, southern accents, African accents, Indian accents, British accents, speaking, screaming, whispering, laughing, and of course, moaning. <laughs> there are so many tales and so many images. And I just want to share, because we're on the verge of our 10th anniversary, I just started to like reflect over the last 10 years. I was in Manila where I saw a group of 30 comfort women between the ages of 70 and 90 chanting Puke in Tagalog with their fists raised. Most of those women had never said the word vagina a day before in their lives. I was in Iceland where the president of Iceland declared himself publicly the first vagina warrior president. I was there in Narok, Kenya, where hundreds of girls in Kenya dancing in the African sun as the first V-Day safe house was opening and their clitoris would not be cut. I was most recently in a Catholic gir a girl school in Cape Haitian, Haiti, overflowing with more than 500 people, mainly men, who were so engrossed with the show that they were literally screaming back at it. I was in an armed motorcade in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, traveling through the streets with Stop Violence Against Wimmer's sign on the car so that everywhere we went in the streets, people were screaming out. I was at a Pansy Hospital in May in Bukavu, Democratic Republic of Congo, on a rooftop with Congolese nurses doing the vagina monologues and doing moans so insanely that literally we had to calm everyone down. Um, <laughs> I was in Islamabad, Pakistan, where the first production of the Vagina Monologues happened in a back clandestine room where 200 women were there and the women who were performing were dressed in red saris and shawa kameez, performing for our sisters from Afghanistan, reading the Afghan piece, and there was so much weeping and so much laughing that women's shadors fell off. <laughs> um, it was an amazing moment. I was there in Juarez, Mexico, where 7,000 people came from every direction to stand up to stop the murders and the disappearance of the women in factories there. I was at the Apollo Theater when Mary Alice, one of the great actresses, literally took down the Apollo with her moans at the first V-Day celebrating African-American, Asian, and Latino women. I was at a 14-hour bus ride in Himachal Pradesh as we drove in India to open a sanctuary in the mountains. I was there when the mayor of Italy, mayor of Rome, opened the first V-Day summit, and I was there in a walkthrough of a seven-foot vagina, and you know where this was, because there's only one city where it could have been, in the lobby of San Francisco. <laughs> I have to tell you, San Francisco, there are world, you know, there are, there are vagina-friendly zones, and there are but San Francisco is a vagina world fair zone, it really is. <laughs>
There's no city like this. Um, I was there in Bosnia where my vagina was my village was performed by girls who had been in the war who had family members who had been raped. I was there in Athens um, with the first time anyone ever did the show. And, and when they did the cunt piece, it, the, the word was puni. And this woman came walking through the street just screaming, puni, puni. And I thought the entire world was either going to change or die. It was hard to tell which. <laughs> I was there um, in Beirut when the article came out um, in, the, in the Beirut Times, and it was this huge article on V-Day, and the only word written in English was vagina. Um, <laughs> I was there in Sioux Falls, um, in Rapid City, when the first production for the Indian Country campaign happened, and women were giving out red feathers. I was there in Washington for the first performance by deaf women, and I learned how to sign vagina. Um, I have seen vagina lollipops, buttons, puppets, quilts, panties, posters, votes, attitudes, and style. So much has happened, so much has changed. We can point to places where violence has been reduced or has been stopped altogether, where the consciousness has most clearly shifted. We have had huge victories. Then, of course, there is the opposite. The world is still profoundly unsafe for women. Violence escalates, war abounds. And last year, during V-Day's spotlight on women in conflict zones, I traveled to Haiti and the Democratic Republic of Congo. I visited women in cities throughout the U.S. and Europe. I met with our V-Day sisters from Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, Iraq, Lebanon, and Afghanistan. In Haiti, I found rape, a tool used in war, now essentially normalized, now rampant, so much so that hundreds of women, hundreds, were raped every, every day. And I think the, the rate now is something like 70% of the women in Haiti have been raped. In the DRC, I have to tell you, in May, I heard the worst stories of atrocities I've ever heard in my life. And I think I came to a point of understanding that if we allow violence to continue, we will see the kind of atrocities we're seeing in the DRC. And if we allow those atrocities to continue, we will see the death of the female species eventually. Throughout North America and Europe, the story of women still raped in colleges, beaten in their homes, trafficked and sold in the streets. In Iraq, the destruction of women's rights since the US invasion, a rise in honor killings, rapes and murders of women. And in Afghanistan, where we so-called so liberated the women of Afghanistan, Warlords, former rapists and murderers are in power. The Taliban is coming back. Girls are afraid to go to school. Women teachers are murdered. Outspoken women in parliament are threatened and censored. In Egypt and throughout Africa, still, women are generally mutilated, almost two million a year. We have broken through many barriers. We have changed the landscape of the dialogue. We have reclaimed our stories and our voice, but we have not yet unraveled or deconstructed the inherent cultural underpinnings and causes of violence. We have not yet penetrated the mindset that somewhere in every single culture gives permission to violence, expects violence, waits for violence, and instigates violence. We have not stopped teaching boys to deny being afraid or doubtful or needy or sorrowful or vulnerable or open or tender and compassionate. We have not elected or become leaders who refuse violence as a possible intervention, who make ending violence the center of everything, rather than amassing more weapons and proving how macho and unbending they can be. As Paul, as Paul Hawken noted in his Blessed Unrest, his brilliant book, our largest export after food is weaponry. 
sent to governments with repressive regimes, governments who destroy indigenous cultures to pay debts incurred by weapons purchases. Violence, the manufacturing of violence, is at the core of the U.S. economy and the core of our soul. We have not yet elected or become leaders who understand that you cannot say you believe in protecting women and children and then bomb the women and children in Iraq. Exactly whose children? We have not yet elected or become leaders who understand that the same mechanisms of occupation, domination and invasion on an international level influence and role model that same behavior on the home and on a domestic level. We have not yet elected or become leaders who are brave enough to make ending violence against women the central issue of their campaign. Essentially, we have not cracked the Teutonic plate at the center of the human psyche that is still more terrified to love than to kill. We have not made violence against women abnormal, extraordinary, unacceptable. We have not come to see it as an ecological issue. Women are the greatest resource of the planet. When you rape them, when you maim them, when you sell them, when you exploit them, when you traumatize them, when you mutilate them and destroy them, you destroy the future. Violence towards women is equivalent to the poisoning of the skies, the destruction of the ozone layer, the polluting of the seas. The disempowerment of women is equal to global warming. The long-term crippling effect of violence against women is that women have stopped being full selves, fully alive, fully creative, imaginative, productive, sexual, in the same way. The earth is being lessened and the species are being killed off, fish are dying, forests are slayed through violence, through disrespect, through dishonoring, through stupidity and greed. If we are going to end violence against women, the whole story has to change. We have to look at shame and humiliation and poverty and racism and what building an empire on the back of the world does to the people who are bent over. We have to say that what happens to women matters, and it matters a lot. Even raising money to stop violence against women makes it something other, something separate from the human condition, from every moment of our lives. It creates a strange fragmentation. Ending violence is, is, is more than a lifestyle shift. It's similar to buying a Prius and believing you've undone global warming. It's the culture that has to change, the beliefs, the underlying story of the culture. Ending violence against women is not a form of altruism or something you do as a charitable act. It is not something you can even legislate, although laws do help to protect women. I have said from the beginning that ending violence against women is not the thing we get to later. Somehow governments and world bodies like the UN, foundations, local and world leaders have still not made this issue a priority, have not stepped up front and center with the energy and resources and will to make a difference. We are still, all these years later, fighting for crumbs, morally, politically, and financially. Think about the scope and vastness of this issue. One out of three women on the planet will be beaten or raped in her lifetime. Think that V-Day now raises more money than any group in the world to stop violence. This is not good news. 
In one year, we raised between four and six million dollars. That is the cost of less than 15 minutes on the war in Iraq. 15 minutes. Women are not some marginalized, insignificant group. We are the majority of citizens. What happens to us determines everything. If we are beaten and traumatized, our children will hold that in their DNA and grow up manifesting that in who they become. If our esteem is destroyed, or our daughter's self-confidence will be hard won or impossible to come by. If we are violated and raped or abused by men, our sons will be made in the witnessing of this, in our bitterness. Ending violence against women is actually about being will willing to struggle to be a different kind of human being. It means redefining power. The only point of having power, it seems to me, is to give it away and inspire other people to have it. Unfortunately, I think we have come to identify women in power not as the radicalization of the mechanism and the definition of power, but instead women climbing to the top of the current patriarchy and bureaucratic hierarchy at any cost. Recently, Benazir Bhutto was asked what the biggest mistake she made in office was, and she said, not leading as a woman. I think the reason V-Day has spread so quickly so far and wide is that it's decentralized and because there are tools you can use to serve your community. Money that they raise is yours. There are certain greed-on givens, a play where the money goes. Um, there is, you have to, it's, it's, diversity is a core element. The rest is for the community to determine. It's a kind of conscious anarchy. We are living in profound times, frightening times. We are at once inhabiting the old patriarchal landscape while at the same time feeling a new world emerging in our bodies and beings. Most of us know, for example, that the political system that now exists is essentially bankrupt that it does not serve people or speak for them. Candidates are essentially bought, controlled, and directed by corporate interests. No one is willing who's running to speak authentically on most pressing, crucial issues. Still, we walk through the motions acting as if there's a real choice, a real difference between the candidates. Most of us sense that the UN's moribund and, and, and rendered static through bureaucracy and hierarchy, yet we still expect it to resolve crisis and arbiter right action in the world. Most of us know that the media is owned by corporate interests and essentially serves them, and still we don't turn our TVs off, we keep buying their papers, and we still believe what we read and see or pretend to. These last days of patriarchy remind me of a scene in The Sound and the Fury by Faulkner. There's a corpse lying in the front living room, rotting and stinking up the house. Everyone smells it, but somehow has stopped smelling it. Everyone is disturbed that it's there, but somehow it has come to be so familiar. No one wants to bury it. We are afraid to call for a new party, invite the world structure in a new media. We are attached to these old structures. As stinking and destructive as they are, they're the stinking destructive we know. I hear people ask of women all the time, and usually in a particularly patronizing way, who stay in violent relationships, well, why don't you just get out? I mean, leave. Why don't you leave? Oh, if it were that easy. Most of us, I would venture to say all of us to some degree, are in one big abusive relation attached to the structures of patriarchy, hierarchy, and oppression that bring about violence and shame and exclusion and insane consumption and addiction and winners and losers. I'm going to just read one thing here. Most of us are attached to having it now moving fast and being big. And there's a little section in a new play I'm writing that I wanted to read about big. Big, big, the deadly, strangling nature of big. 
Big is small, so wide and empty, you get lost consuming enough to be somebody. Big is being so well known, no one, including yourself, has any idea who you are. <laughs> Big is the size of the greed, the hunger that moves American tanks into foreign cities, that kills 268 million acres of rainforest a year. Big is Walmart's. Big is the size of bank accounts of 99 very rich people where the rest of the big world starves. Big is the gap between what leaders promise and what they deliver. Big is the emptiness of promises is the expanse of entitlement. Big is the consumer cavern that swallows imagination, time, eye contact, indigenous people, stillness, small specks, comfort, community, Bengal tigers, poetry, humility, and monarch butterflies. What does it mean to leave? It means to be alone, it means to be outside, it means to be shut off from the possibility of approval of recognition. It means grieving and raging, it means finding the others who are leaving and building small tribes to sustain us and remind us and strengthen us. I think there are many of us in this room who have leaving or have not already left. I think there are probably those in the room who I want to remind you what Castro said, that it only takes 10% of the population to have a revolution. You just need a totally committed 10%. As we move into our 10th year in V-Day, I hold the image and thought of the revolutionary 10%. This year in April, April 11th and 12th, we are going to hold our 10th anniversary, V to the 10th. And you have to say it every time you say it, V to the 10th. In New Orleans. We're holding it in New Orleans. To celebrate our victories and honor the women of New Orleans in the Gulf South, who have held up that, those communities and held up that world. And we are going to call for the leaving. We're going to leave our father's house. We are going to holding it in New Orleans because we know the storm and the flood and what happened there is a microcosm of what needs fixing. During the weekend in April, and it also is a microcosm, not just what needs fixing in New Orleans, but in every city in this country that is in very hard times and in every city in the world. During the weekend, we're going to have a huge festival. We're taking over the Superdome, which we're calling Super Love, and we're going to restore and transform and give love to the women of New Orleans because they are the most powerful, resilient, magnificent, and all they need is resources and support. I invite you to come. There's going to be the biggest performance of the Vagina Monologues that we have ever done. Um, it's going to be in the dome, and by, in the arena. And by the way, when you're in the Superdome, it's 63,000. When you get to the arena, it's only 18. It looks like a small theater. Um, but it's going to be a fantastic evening. Uh, my speech is way, way too long. So what I want to do um, is, is take a moment before I stop to say something, I think, from my real center of my heart. I just came back from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I can't. I'm still there. I'm still there. I saw atrocities. I saw hurt, I saw unkindness and cruelty being done to women's bodies I never thought was possible. The legacy of genocide, legacy of colonialism, legacy of racism is in every one of us. And how it comes out in, in, in so many places is towards women and towards the earth. If we are going to transform and keep human beings here, we have to go back and rewrite those stories by the way we treat and honor every living person on the earth. And we have to make a decision whether we're going to stay in the patriarchy, in the father's house, in the old father's house, or whether we're going to make a decision to be brave enough to leave and to go out there into whatever is coming that we don't see or that we don't know. I want to close with a piece that I wrote, and it's a call to all of us. 
And um, it's my hope that we all get brave enough and big enough and bold enough to make this leaving in the next few years. It's called Leaving My Father's House. I am leaving my father's house, stepping out, stepping off, free-falling outside the confines of what is acceptable and known. I am leaving this cage which suppressed me, depressed me, made less of me so thoroughly I came to call it my legacy, my country, my home. I am leaving those angry men whose broken hearts and wounds became more painful and urgent than my own. I'm not going to be sorry anymore or responsible or wrong. I'm not going to give everything that is mine and call it yours. I'm going to stop believing I can wake you up or break open your shell or get you to feel your sorrow, your grief, your tenderness. I'm going to stop maining my life force into your self-esteem. Air pump girl blowing up boy rubber ball. You can stay flat and go nowhere by yourself. I am leaving my father's house. I'm not going to whisper anymore or tiptoe or lie flat on my back. I'm not ducking, flinching, waiting till you finish, or whimpering in the dark. I'm moving out. I'm not going back. I am leaving my father's house because I no longer believe your lies about freedom and democracy, that it hurts you more than your whips or words or policies hurt me. I'm going to believe what I see. Bruises on my neck, floating corpses in the streets, Iraqi women with their voting fingers chopped off, emaciated polar bears melted from corporate greed. I am leaving your guilt-tripping, fear-inducing, evil-projecting idea of me. I'm fleeing your disguised terror of my bigness, my hunger, my vagina, my compassion, my tongue. I'm leaving my father's house. I see how it's punishing, spinning out insanely in paranoid desperation, dividing the world into evildoers and saints. I'm leaving my father's house. I do not want a position there. I will not imitate your cold tactics to get a seat on the floor. I will not leash your prisoners or jerk them off. I will not starve your workers, organize your lynch mobs, or camouflage your crimes. I will not be tits and ass on your arms or smile till my face breaks off. I'm leaving my father's house. Corporate towers, cathedrals, mosques, and pentagons, picket fence houses, and synagogues, I'm going out. Past the neighborhoods and nations, fundamental doctrines and misinterpreted laws, past the reach of your fist, past the fire breath of your rage, past the tentacles of your seductive melancholy or your unspoken promises to change. I am willing to be alone, disliked, slandered, and misconstrued because my freedom is more important than your so-called love, because my leaping will be the ultimate jumping off, will be the beginning without a daddy in charge, on top in control of all the goods, ideas, interpretations, and cash. I'm going out there by myself. But I know, I know I will find the rest of you there, waiting, ready, knee-deep in the garden, hands raised in the water, way, way out past my father's house. Thank you all.